0: Our first reading this morning comes from Psalms, 32nd Psalm, verses 1 to 7. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let All who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. The Word of the Lord. Our second reading comes from the book of Luke the 15th chapter, verses 1 to 3, and then 11b to 32. Listen again for a word from God. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming around to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property among them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So... He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill a fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. May the meditations of our hearts together upon your word, your word to us this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a quote from one of my heroes, uh, Nadia boltz Weber, who was a Lutheran pastor in Denver. Uh, her na- the name of her church is The House of for Saints and Sinners. And uh, she's a very interesting person. Um, Her quote is this. Uh, She's a recovering addict herself, um, ministers to a lot of folks on the street, but people from all walks of life. Um, And the quote is, identity. It's always God's first move. Before we do anything wrong and before we do anything right, God has named us and claimed us as his own. It's a comfort, it's good news before we do anything wrong and before we do anything right. It's also hard to accept. I know you didn't ask, but when I read this very familiar parable of the prodigal son in the 15th chapter of Luke, I'll tell you what annoys me And it reminds me that what annoys me. What annoys me is conservative Christian moralists who pretend that we can only relate to God and God only wants to relate to us on the basis of our correct behavior, our correct points of view. And I know you didn't ask, but I'll go ahead and tell you that another thing that annoys me is liberal or progressive Christian moralists who pretend and build their entire edifice of faith upon the notion that the only way God wants to relate to you and me is on the basis of our correct behavior, our correct points of view, and correct actions. In a moralistic world, a fair world, a just world, right behavior gets rewarded, right? And bad behavior is punished. And that's how a just world should be, right? That's how we know whether we're good people, whether God is going to accept us or not. Maybe not. Because the biblical record of our human relationship with God, what it says in Scripture is quite different. The Bible says it doesn't work that way. God desires to be in the a relationship with the real you, not the best you. Right? Not our perfect selves, not our Instagram Facebook selves, not when we only have one chin, not just our best side. What does the psalmist say? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are known and loved. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I put my hope, not in my good behavior. Think about this parable today. Nobody behaves very well in this text. Nobody. Let's start with the easy one the younger son. It's the story's first movement. He demands his inheritance from his father while his father is very much alive. It's supposed to come to him later, right? In essence, this son treats his father as if he were already dead. There can't be any worse insult than that. Worst, it can't be a worse infliction of pain by a son to a father. And the father, instead of getting angry, whatever he felt, he agrees. And the text says that the father divides his, not just his money, the word is bios. The father, in Greek, the father divides his life and gives the younger son what the younger son had coming to him later upon the father's death. And if that weren't enough, if that insult weren't enough, But we have now, after the money is transferred, we have this progressive estrangement from this boy's family. He gets the money, he collects his stuff, and he does travel to a far-off country, a Gentile land. This is a Jewish story being told by a Jewish man, Jesus, to Jewish listeners. And to travel to a far-off land to one of the nations, the goyim, is already suspect. And there, in dissolute living, the younger son squanders all this money really fast. He's a gambler. He's a carouser. He lives fast and loose. And as that usually usually results in, a quick loss of all resources. And then, to make it worse, there's a famine in the land, in this far-off Gentile land. And so, just to survive this Jewish young man hires himself out to a Gentile pig farmer, right? It's the only job available, I guess. But remember, swine in Israel's religion are an abomination, they are an unclean animal. So this is the lowest of the low. This guy is now working with pigs and it even gets worse than that because the pigs are eating better than he is. And then he's starving. He's at his lowest point. He's bottomed out, to use 12 step language. This is a bad behaving son. Let's talk about the father and his bad behavior. He gives up pretty easily, doesn't he? He gives in to his younger son's demands, the claim on his estate, and then he doesn't get angry, he doesn't exact revenge, he just lets the guy do whatever he wants. We would often judge a parent like that. And remember, at the end of the story, as the, or that first movement of the story, when the younger son is returning home and the father's waiting at the window, it's kind of a poignant moment, and he goes and he runs out to meet his younger son to throw his arms around him and kiss him. In the ancient Near East, for a grown man, especially the head of household, to run was and is unbecoming and humiliating and almost would cause laughter in people hearing this story or reading it but the father doesn't behave as a father should he sets aside his dignity his honor he runs to meet his son as esau ran to meet jacob even though esau earlier in the old testament had good reason never to forgive his younger brother the older the father kisses the young boy and that kiss is a sign of forgiveness just as david had kissed absalom in first Samuel, and before the son could even ask to be taken on as a hired hand, the father calls for a robe, possibly the one the son wore before he left, or a symbol of importance. You don't work when you wear a robe like that. The father calls for a ring to be put on the son's finger, and he calls for sandals to be put on his tired feet. The father is lowering himself in the presence of somebody who has dishonored him. And so doing, he's dishonoring himself. Thinking about the story and talking about it, one time the late, great homiletics professor, Fred Craddock, uh, had just finished talk, pre- presenting this to a congregation he was visiting, and after the presentation, one of the gentlemen sitting there, a church member, said that he had, didn't really care for what he just heard from the good professor. So Fred Craddock asked the man, why? Why didn't you like what I had to say? And the man said, well, I guess I just don't like the story of the prodigal son at all. And Craddock said, well, what don't you like about it? And the man said, it's not morally responsible. Craddock asked, what do you mean by that? Forgiving that boy, said the man, is not morally responsible. Craddock asked, well, what would you have done? The man said, I think if my prodigal son came home, I'd have him arrested. Craddock asked the man, well, what what would you have given the the prodigal as a sentence? And the guy goes, I'd give him six years. This father does not punish the young boy as the young boy deserves. He, by throwing this incredible party for his son, signifies to everybody in his home, in his household, and in the village, how this younger son of his is to be treated from now on as an honored son. And he calls for the killing of the fatted calf. Meat was not part of the daily diet in the ancient Near East. If you were gonna have meat, it was a big celebration. This was a party. You have a younger son who doesn't behave well, and now we have a father who doesn't behave as he should. A lot of bad behavior in this family, and finally we have the older son in the story's second movement, which is really the drama of this story. The point of view shifts to this older son who is out doing what he's supposed to be doing like he always does, out in the fields, working for his father, and as he's coming in from a hard hard day of work, he hears the celebration, he hears music, dancing going on in his house, He's suspicious. He's already getting a little bit angry. Something is happening happening outside of the norm, outside of expectation. So he calls one of the servants, and he asks, what's going on here? And the servant says, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf. And the older son refuses to go in. Again, you have this physical separation as a sign of alienation, just like with the younger son, right? Right? Have you ever had a relationship broken beyond repair in your own life? Can you imagine the pain of that if you've been there? Initially, we're not sure why this son is so angry, but whatever is bothering him, it's bad enough that he is willing to break with his father over it. Two sons, one father, none of whom is an Eagle Scout, apparently. One of the boys acts like a wild child. The other one is a self-absorbed goody two-shoes. And you got a father who's behaving like a doormat. This is dysfunctional. They put the fun back in dysfunctional, this family. But remember why Jesus is telling this parable in the 15th chapter of Luke. Remember the context of this story always important in biblical interpretation understanding to look at the context, what's happening around the verses that we are reading. This chapter starts out, as we read today, Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Shonda, that's a big sin. And then quickly after that intro in the 15th chapter, you get these two quick parables, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep, this notion of something precious being lost and then found again, and the importance that we put on finding that precious item that we have lost, that precious relationship that we might have lost. My family likes to tease me about the story. I had these very expensive uh, prescription sunglasses, Ray-Ban, and I'm not a big style guy. I know that surprises you. Uh, It's great that I have a profession where I get to cover up a lot of my mistakes with a black robe. But I had these sunglasses, and one time I couldn't find them, and I started freaking out because they're expensive. I need them to see. I can't use regular sunglasses. And then my daughter said to me, Dad, they're on your head. Right? Key fobs. I can't stand key fobs. You know why? I have no idea where they are half the time. I dropped my key fob in my car one time, fell down, couldn't find it. Of course, whenever I went into my car, it was unlocked. I could start my car for six months. I couldn't find the key fob. Finally, one day, when I had the door open, just there's a little ledge, it's, it's open. It could have fallen out. It's been sitting there for six months. I finally found it. I was so happy. My key fob was lost and now was found. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. When she was a little girl, I once took my daughter Maggie to Walmart to find a pink bicycle with a white and pink basket on the handlebars that she had found online that fit our price range. So into Harrison, New Jersey we went. Why isn't there a Walmart closer to here? I can't stand Walmart, but when you need it, you need it. Right? Walked into Walmart, found the bike section in the back, Got into a very interesting conversation with a young guy about bicycles with pink baskets. Looked around. My five-year-old daughter was gone. I couldn't find her. Never happened to you, parents? I have never been so scared in my life. I'm running up and down the aisles, I ran to the front, had them announce, couldn't find her, started panicking, started realizing I had to call Sarah at some point and report this. Went back to where I had... Initially lost her and there she was, she never left. I would just gotten so terrified I, I stopped being rational and I finally found my daughter and could go home. When a child gets lost in a store, when a driver takes a wrong turn and goes down the wrong road and gets lost, when you misplaced your glasses or your key fob, is that a sin? No, it's who we are, at least who I am. The younger son gives us an example of the solution to being lost and found, which is the dynamic in this story. He has lost most of all, not just the money, not just his dignity, he lost his identity as his father's son. And the key verse in this whole text says, but when he came to himself, there in that pigsty, starving, envying the pigs for the pods of grain that they were given to eat. When he came to himself, the son makes the important turn back toward God. That's called repentance. It just simply means turning. No moral implications with the word. In Hebrew, it's shuv, just turn, go back home. And the son starts heading back home. He makes a plan to apologize, to put himself in his father's hands, And that decision, and he came to himself and decided to go home, controls everything that happens next. The boy's not just trying to get food, not just trying to improve his situation. He realizes he's broken the relationship with his beloved father and that that is the foundation for everything else that will come. He came to himself. The father in the story, as bad as his behavior is, he knows himself already. He's willing to take the heat and the criticism because he knows who he is. Have you ever met somebody who knows who they are? They're not always popular. They're not always in, in, in the in crowd because they make the rest of us nervous. They do what they want to do. They don't worry about what other people think of them. The father is willing to take the insults and the criticism for the way he has loved his son from the beginning, the way he's taken the insult and the way he welcomes the son home. Knowing who you are, the father knowing who the father is, a father controlled most of all by love, makes it possible for him to give the son the inheritance, to wait until the son comes back, to forgive the son, to embrace and welcome him, and then to celebrate like there's no tomorrow, to keep what's important first and foremost in his mind and heart. Knowing who you are, knowing your own identity as a beloved child of God, makes it possible to wait for reconciliation, to work for a better world, to live into hope. Because here's the thing about justice and hope in a better world, we have to be in it for the long haul. We can't just quit when things don't go well, when we don't get the kind of results we want or the recognition we want. If you know you're loved by a gracious, welcoming God, who makes peace with you, you can work for peace. If you've been welcomed as an outsider by a God who doesn't count your brokenness against you, then you're willing to welcome other people on the margins. The relationship with God that we were given by grace makes possible our work in the world as Christian people. Alan Culpepper, the great Luke scholar, said there's no other image that comes closer to describing the character of God than the waiting father in this parable, peering down the road, longing for the son's return, then springing to his feet and running to meet that boy. That's who God is. We talked about that in confirmation this morning with the kids. God is love more than anything. God is love. Finally, you have the older brother. The conversation between the older brother and the father out there on the porch, this obstinate, angry, self-righteous young man and his father is the climax and focus really of the entire parable because the ending is not yet written. Remember, this chapter starts, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees and scribes were accusing Jesus of living outside the moral boundaries that everybody followed. The older brother is angry at his... Younger brother's bad behavior and his father's bad behavior. The father doesn't plead with the younger son, remember when he leaves, but he does now plead with his elder son out there on that porch while the party's going on behind him. And the scene isn't finished. We are the elder son, each and every one of us. We have to decide whether we're going to trust an unfair God with our very lives. A God who doesn't reward us or others for being perfect, but a God who works in the broken places in our lives to make us whole again and again and again. Because the truth is, it's not just us that don't act like we should. We're not the only ones who exhibit bad behavior. Ours is a God who doesn't just work when things are going well. How does it work all the time. God doesn't just work in your life when you deserve it or when I deserve it. Leonard Cohen wrote in his song Anthem, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. That's how my life is, anyway. You know, in every other religion, we have to go to God. Every other religion expects us to make our way toward God's holiness And we can't get close to God in other religious traditions until we ourselves become holy. But in Christianity, the proclamation is just the opposite. It says we do not have to find our way to God because God in Christ finds God's way to us. That's amazing grace. There's a story of a five-year-old boy who made a ceramic dish as a Christmas gift for his parents in his classroom. And as the boy gathered up his things to go home on the last day of school in winter term, he wrapped his gift very carefully. But as he did so, the ceramic dish slipped from his hands and hit the tile floor with a crash. And the boy froze and burst into tears. He had ruined his parents' handmade gift that he'd worked on so very hard. And the father who picked him up from school that day knelt down to comfort him and said don't cry son don't cry it doesn't make any difference and then the mother lifted the boy up in her arms held him close as tears ran down her cheeks too and when she finally got him to calm down the mom said let's just pick up the pieces and see what we can make out of what is left friends we're going to wander in life we're gonna break sometimes you and I But wherever you go, wherever it might be broken, God is waiting to welcome you home. Thank God for that good news. Amen.